0: I said, I don't have a job. I resigned from my job because I was about to start this internship in a week. And they said, hey, i sorry, there's not much we can do for you. And I go to my wife and I say, hey, there's not a lot of jobs for people that have a youth ministry degree. I'm not really sure how we're going to save our house and how we're going to put food on the table.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ordinary People, Extraordinary Things. I'm your host, Cliff DuVenois. Every now and then, a story comes across my desk that I say to myself, I have to talk to this person because it is so wild. Today, we're talking to somebody who turned their hobby into a multi-million dollar business, has over 100 employees. Their Facebook page is crazy popular, over 165,000 followers. They are the largest online retailer of reptile and amphibian products in the United States. And they've been flagged now four years in a row as one of the fastest growing company in Inc. 5000. That is just incredible. And it's all due to our little friend, the frog. Let me welcome to the show the CEO and founder of Josh's Frogs, and that would be Josh Willard. Josh, how are you? Doing really well. Excited to talk about our business and talk about how we got to this point. Yes, definitely. Now, should I call you Josh or how about Pastor Willard? Oh, Josh is fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely come to that in a second. So why don't you tell everybody where you're from and where you grew up? So I grew up in Jackson, Michigan for
0: the majority of my childhood. So we lived in Bellevue for a few years. And then my family moved out to Jackson when we were eight. And that's really where the love for animals started. We were two blocks away from the swamp. We spent a lot of time in the swamp catching stuff. Did a little fishing in that That's boys usually do. Yep. That. And so uh, my mom's rule was uh, you could keep anything for one night, and then you had to return it the next day. And so that's where the that love of animals came from, it was right there in Jackson. So you
1: had this love of animals, and at some point in time, you decided to go off to college. Yep. Now, I got to ask the question because I'm trying to figure out the order here. Yeah. But you did become a pastor. So did you study that first? Yeah. So seminary?
0: Yep. So I went to uh, college. I uh, did a short stint in pre-med. Really loved science. Did really well in science in school. Thought that I wanted to become a doctor. And I got connected in that first semester working with an organization called Youth for Christ. It was an organization that went into the schools for students that might not have a real good youth program in their church. I did a youth program there at the school to pull the kids together in that way and started doing that and really fell in love with that and uh, really caught a passion for young people and changed my major to youth ministry and finished my four-year degree with that. And then I was a pastor for uh, just short of seven years after that, after I graduated from college.
1: And during this whole time, you have a love for frogs.
0: Yes. Yep. So I sold off everything when I went to college, couldn't keep anything in the dorm. And uh, when my wife and I got married, I was a pastor. She was a substitute teacher. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. And I really felt, hey, as an introvert, I need to find some stuff that, that that really allowed me to recharge different hobbies that I could invest in. And I came back to the animals, and I said, you know what? I wonder if I bought a bunch of stuff in bulk and sold off the excess stuff, if I could cover the cost of this terrarium inside of my house. And so my wife allowed me to do that. I filled our apartment bedroom with supplies against all the walls. And I sold off uh, a bunch of stuff that I had purchased before the credit card statement was due. And I had this tank of frogs in our living room. And I was like, that was awesome. (laughs) I think I can do it again. And so I asked my wife, hey, can I get another tank? And she's like, sure, you can go ahead and get another one. And I did the same thing again. and It grew from that into we were a two-room apartment and we didn't have any kids at that time. So my wife said, hey, you can have your animal room in that one apartment. Just don't, nothing can come out of that room into the rest of our house. And so I was buying stuff in bulk, selling off the excess, build my collection in that room so I could have a couple hours every other day taking care of animals as a kind of a recharge for being in a job that's very extroverted, focused, being an introvert myself.
1: So I want to take a moment to give a shout out to Mrs. Willard, because I'm seeing this as a total Homer Simpson moment. (laughs) where you come home and go, I got this idea to sell frogs. Can we keep them in the living room? And she's like, sure. I don't know very many women that would say yes, yes to that. Well, well, the apartment wasn't the worst part because we ended
0: up moving out of that apartment into our house and it was an unfinished basement and my wife had no plans for that. And so I said, hey, instead of one room, can I have the entire basement? And she was like, yeah, sure, as long as it stays in the basement. And so ended <laughs> up growing my hobby from one bedroom in our apartment to one
1: basement in our house. Oh, that is so great. So you've experimented with selling some, like you said, you, you bought some equipment, you're selling that in bulk. When did you make the leap from selling just the equipment, terrariums, whatever, to actually selling live frogs? It was a hobby for a few years where I'm just trying to build my collection, just really trying to
0: fill the niche of finding a hobby for me to do. And at this point, the church that I'm involved with is growing growing. And we're serving well over 100 kids on a given week. And so my job transitions from less doing stuff with students to doing stuff with adults that are leading students. And I'm really feeling like, hey, I really, really enjoy interacting with students and helping students. And so I think I want to do a kind of a career change. And so I decided to go get my master's in counseling. So I do that. I finish the program. And at the very end of the program, you have to do an internship. And that's where you do eight months working at a facility. You get a bunch of hours. And then after that eight-month period, you can graduate and get your license and you can go into the field. I was all set up to do a juvenile detention home uh, right outside of Lansing. And a week before my internship was supposed to start, I get a call from them. Then they say, hey, we lost our funding. We can't take an intern. So I call the college and I say, hey, I'm supposed to do my internship in a week. We need to find a new spot. And they say, Josh, there's just no way we can do it. In a week's time, there's no way. We need you to wait a year and do it with the next group that does it. And I said, I don't have a job. I resigned from my job because I was about to start this internship in a week. And they said, I'm sorry, there's not much we can do for you. So this is 2007, starting the 2008 crisis. And I go to my wife and I say, hey, there's not a lot of jobs for people that have a youth ministry degree um, right now. I'm not really sure how we're going to save our house and how we're going to put food on the table. We're talking. And I said, I've been selling this stuff to build this hobby. I wonder if I stopped building the hobby and just was selling extra stuff, if I could make enough money in this given year to support us. And so at that point, I had not made any money. i just grown the amount of frogs I was keeping that year. I made $16,000 in profit that one year. I was able to save our house and put food on the table before the internship started. So it was really forced upon me to really start the beginning of of selling animals and selling selling stuff profitably instead of just trying to build a hobby at that point.
1: So you wrote up a business plan, a marketing plan, did market research.
0: Nope, I didn't do any of that.
1: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, I love it. Your back's against the wall. Yep. Let's just start selling more frogs. Yep, yep. The Homer Simpson again.
0: <laughs> yep, so I start my internship. At that point really started wrestling with, okay, I think there's something here. I'm doing my internship from nine in the morning till eight at night, and then coming home and doing frog stuff and packing boxes till midnight, one o'clock, getting up at 5 a.m., putting the boxes out on my front step so they can ship out and doing my internship. And I do that for um, that eight-month period which was just a blur for me. Had our first kid at that point. And at the end of the internship, the director says, hey, Josh, your clients show up and they pay. Would you like a job? We'd like to just continue this moving forward. And with one kid at home at that point, I I said, I think I want to try this frog thing for now. And I can always go back to this counseling thing. And so I explained that to the director and said, no, I think I want to try this frog thing, see if I can grow it from where I grew it uh, over the last year and into that internship. And see if I can turn that into to something. And I always thought that I would try it for a few years and then go back to the counseling, and that just happened to the case.
1: Was your wife working during this time, or did she decide to stay home?
0: So she ended up becoming a teacher. So she got a full time teaching job right within a couple of years of us getting married. Yep, she was a teacher at that time.
1: So you do something really scary, yeah, with a child at home. Yep, and you are doing, like I said, something risky. Yep. In the fact that you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to start building a business. Do you got any kind of entrepreneurial background? Were your parents entrepreneurs? You're the one, maybe black sheep uncle in the family was an entrepreneur. Do you have any of that behind you? No. Like when people
0: ask that, I try to look back at my past. and I don't have any relatives or anything like that or parents that were entrepreneurs. But I do remember um, my mom just getting sick of us being around the house and saying, hey, you guys need to start a lawn care maintenance company. And so she made us make these flyers. Did uh, she really
1: say that? Yes.
0: Yes. So she. See, my
1: mom said, go cut the grass. My so, mom didn't say, go start a company.
0: So she kicked us out of the house and talked us through, like, how do you go to somebody and how do you ask them if you can cut their grass and how do you do all this stuff? So my mom walked us through that. And we started cutting people's grass and doing weeding and doing other landscaping stuff. And you're getting paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. And we were in an environment, a neighborhood with a lot of people that were much older and on fixed incomes. And so a lot of the people could not do the lawn care that was uh, required of them and also couldn't afford to go out and pay professional service to do that. So we filled a little niche in our little area for that. And So that that those our. Uh, Entrepreneurial start. I I mentioned earlier that I'm an introvert. Like that. Like I think my mom was probably more so doing it because she realized that that tendency in me to be really reclusive, and so really pushed me out of my comfort zone to learn some skills about how do you look people in the eye, and how do you sell yourself, and how do you communicate uh, with people. So I had that at that period of uh, of my life. But beyond that, just really learned by listening to a lot of podcasts, reading a lot of books, and just really trying to figure it out as I go.
1: When you first had the idea about, hey, I would like to have this as a hobby and you bought some extra stuff. So typically some of the questions that I'll get from people is initially, where did you get that first seed of money to start this going?
0: Yeah, at that point I had an Xbox and so I sold that for $150 and then I used that $150 to start the website and then I had a credit card. So I bought the supplies on the credit card and then I had 45 days to sell them. So it was okay, so you putting my back for this. Yes. yes. Well, that's so even my, bigger risk. So I put my back up against the wall and had 45 days that I had to sell the stuff before the credit card payment was due.
1: Wow. I'm glad that all worked <laughs> out. Yeah. yeah. So when you talked before about building out the website, did you build the website yourself? Did you Oh I yeah, something...
0: I had $150 and I wasn't sure how long that would last. Yeah, we if you if you use something called the Wayback Machine. You go online, you can type in our um, web address into the Wayback Machine, and I'll show you what our website looked like in 2004, 2005. And it's ugly, and it's nasty, and... Uh, but it worked. Yeah, totally surprised that it ever, anybody ever purchased from it, but it actually worked. So yeah, yep.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something too, that when people go out and they start these businesses and they think everything's got to be perfect, you just had a website that just worked. Yep, yep. Now, done your website, when you launched it, did you have a... Credit card processing built in, a little shopping cart. People could buy a tank and I want this frog and whatever it is they could do all of it on there. So I didn't have any technical background. Um, I was
0: decent with a computer at that at that point, but really couldn't do any of that complex stuff. And so what I did is I um, used PayPal at that point was doing buttons.
1: I remember those. So you those. could do PayPal
0: yeah. button. And so I built it out with PayPal buttons. So you'd click a button and you'd purchase that stuff through PayPal. So it was all on PayPal's backend, but learned to to go into the library, grabbed an HTML book and learned how to insert that code and try to figure out how to do it on a shoestring budget budget so I could support that hobby at that point.
1: For our audience, we're going to take a moment to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the explosive growth that Josh's Frogs has it gone through? We'll see you after the break. If you are enjoying this episode, well then let me tell you, there's plenty more interesting stories to come. Michigan is full of people doing extraordinary things. And you can get these great stories sent directly to your inbox. Just go to totalmichigan.com slash join. Enter your email address and join our community. When you do, we will also send you our top five interviews, the powerful lessons we've learned from these people, an invitation to our Facebook group, behind the scenes stories and pictures, as well as advance notice of upcoming guests and events. Just go to TotalMichigan.com join. It's fast, it's free, and it's easy. Sign up today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ordinary People, Extraordinary Things. I'm your host, Cliff DuVinois. Today, we're talking with the CEO and founder of Josh's Frogs, and that would be Josh Willard. Josh, before the break, we were talking about getting your business up and running. You built the website. Thank goodness for PayPal, because you could start collecting money online. What I would like to do now is start talking about the growth that you're seeing. And I ask this question because it seems like there's, and I want to talk a lot more about this too, there's like a tight community around the people that actually enjoy having these exotic frogs as pets. And also too how you're learning to breed them and to grow them and everything else. Let's just go back. So you've got the website launched. You're starting to make some profit. Like you said, I think yep. 16000 your first yep. year. Yep. So you made that profit. Talk to us about the next growing point from there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Once I decided, hey, okay, let's take this out of my house and let's rent a little bit of space there in Owasso and let's make a real good go at it. Hired my first couple of employees at that period. And what was that like? That was... Scary. It was fun though at the same time. So scary in the sense of bringing on employees that you are responsible for giving them a paycheck on a regular basis is scary. But the other part of it that's exciting for me is realizing like that I can bring people into our business that have drastically different skills and abilities than what I have. Being an introvert, I'm not a very good salesperson. So one of our first hires was Zach, who's still with our company today, to head up some of the sales and marketing that does some of the trade shows that we do. He loved that type of work very great with people, fills his bucket to go and talk to people all day long. That drains my bucket to, to talk to people all day <laughs> long. So f- that was really exciting to bring on some of those people at the very beginning and fill the niches that, that I, I could realize, hey, I'm not really good at this part and we need to be good at that part as we move forward and started hiring some people that I was connected with. So people from my uh, the town I was living in that I had met through church and started doing friends and family, like finding out who has a who has somebody that they know that needs a job at that point, and really building a team around that. And so we got to the point where it became less scary and became more stable. And we really looked at our business and the potential of our business and said, like, I think it's more than just selling animals. I'd love for us to have the opportunity to make a difference in our hobby. And so that's when we sat down and we looked at our business and we're like, okay, we're doing some stuff on the business end that's really good. So we took all of these parts of our hobby and we brought them all together. So we brought the plants in, we brought the bugs in, we brought the tanks and the substrates and the animals and we're selling all of it together. And that makes good business sense at that point to do. But I said, we have the opportunity to grow and to make a difference in our hobby. And so uh, very early on, we decided to take a stand and say, "Hey, we weren't going to sell wild-caught animals, and we were going to produce all of our animals in house." And so, made that decision from the very beginning, and decided that that was going to be our mantra moving forward. That we were going to we we're going to change our hobby, we we're going to improve the quality of the animals that are in our hobby, uh, and do it ethically and sustainably. And so, we decided very early on that we were going to do that, and that has grown and changed and morphed as we've gone through the years. It changed from hey, we're just producing animals to, hey, I think we could partner with other organizations uh, that the frogs are native and we can support some of that conservation. So we started working with some partners outside of the the United States, places in Madagascar, Majitsu, that is collecting some of the frogs in the wild to uh, to establish colonies of those in captivity because their habitat is being destroyed. And so we're able to partner with them. And so every time we sell a Mantella, we're giving money back to that organization and connect people's hobby and what they're passionate about doing with conservation efforts outside of the country.
1: So let's go back and unpack a couple things there. So first off, the one thing that caught my attention when we came in here was the fact that you were one of the first online retailers to actually bring everything together. So before, yep. if you wanted to start collecting these little critters, you might go to one website and get the critter, then you have to go to another website and get the terrarium, and then you have yep. to go to another one to get the bedding or yep get the plants or whatever it is, but you brought that all in-house on one website so everybody could order everything they need to get started. Yeah. Yeah. It was a,
0: it was a glaring issue in our hobby. That's how you had to do it. And so it was a really quick win for us to do that. Just so much cost savings for the end consumer to be able to just order stuff from one location and get it all shipped in one box. And so that was a really early win. And as a growing business, that was hard to do Because we would have to grow slowly. So we couldn't just start with carrying everything. So it was adding stuff and adding stuff as we continued to grow. So it was a process to do that. And so a process that we're still continuing to this day.
1: And before when you were also talking to you about the conservation efforts that you were doing as well, there's this talk about you just can't go out, capture frogs, and then expect them to breed in captivity. There's there's like a life cycle or something that they have to go through to get acclimated to being in captivity. Talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Decades ago, you would think that the majority of pets in, our, in the exotic pet industry would be wild caught. So these are animals that are being collected, could be halfway around the world, collected, stored at a port, waiting for paperwork to come through. And then those animals are shipped, usually not in a very fast method to the United States. And then they make it to an importer who then has got to sell it to a wholesaler who's then got to sell it to a pet store. And so it wasn't a very efficient supply chain, especially for something that is alive. And so a lot of people really had a lot of trouble, um, and it was very difficult to keep a lot of these animals because they endured such stress in this transportation process. And then also, too, in a lot of cases, were very old animals at that point anyways. And one of the cool things, it's really awesome when it lines up this way, but doing captive breeding is ethical and sustainable but it also produces a much better product. You, I just talked about that supply chain issues with getting a wild-caught animal. In captive bred animals here in the States, we're breeding them, we're taking care of them, and if somebody purchases one of those animals. We put it in a box at 4 p.m., and we give it on a FedEx truck, and it's to anywhere in the country the next morning by 10.30 a.m. So that animal <laughs> experiences a longer-than-normal nighttime period, and that's it. They're in their new home and ready to enjoy a happy, long life.
1: Now, and I do want to talk about this because it still cracks me up that you can put animals into boxes and ship them around the United States. Do you do globally or just the U.S.? So
0: globally, we'll work with export partners. And what we'll do is we'll ship a big lot of animals, hundreds of animals at a given time to an importer who will consolidate that together and then sell that to a distributor in another country. So we'll consolidate big lots of animals that go outside of the country. But the vast majority of our animals are sold right here in the United States.
1: Now, the second thing that comes to mind is when I think about, of course, I'm a big fan of the internet. I Mm -hmm. buy 90% of my stuff on the internet. At some point in time, you probably had to make this decision about if you're going to start building pet stores or not. Or maybe that wasn't even on the roadmap. But talk to us about that decision to stay as an online retailer versus becoming a brick and mortar.
0: Yeah, that's a, a a big question because I think it, it ties on a lot of things that have to do with just not our business and not in the pet industry, but trying to figure out what you're good at and what you're built for. So um, you take a look at the way in which our company built and staffed. Like we're really built and staffed around selling stuff online. And so what we made a decision about was that That we need to get our stuff into pet stores, but it doesn't have to be us doing the pet stores. What we've done is we've partnered with mom and pop pet stores that might have one location. we partnered with larger pet stores that might have a few locations. And then we've partnered with larger big box pet stores to get our products into the hands of uh, customers that might not be Uh, looking for animals online, but would be interested in animals and happen to come upon them in their local uh, pet store. We're trying to find those, uh, those partners that can help us reach more people and realizing that we don't have to do that part of it, that we can partner with other places in order to accomplish that.
1: And speaking of partnering, one of the things that I noticed being, I'm a fan of your Facebook page is going through there and all of a sudden one day seeing this big old hairy tarantula <laughs> yeah. photo yeah. on there. And it's glow-in-the-dark blue. Yeah. So I'm like, great, I'm going to have nightmares tonight <laughs> just from that photo. Uh. And, of course, your Facebook group is very active. Yep. And I would like to talk about that in a little bit. But you've decided now to branch out. It's no longer Josh's Frogs. It's, yep. Josh's frogs. it's like you got Noah's Ark here yep. or something. Yep. Yep. you got all these little critters. So talk to us about branching out into reptiles and, yep. and spiders and other creepy crawlies.
0: Yeah, we started off with frogs just because that's what I started off with. But as we started adding more products, we found that people like to collect multiple different types of animals when they're keeping those as, as pets. And so we've branched off into uh, reptiles. We breed uh, not very many snakes. We breed a couple of those. Mainly we're focused on lizards that are kept bioactively. And so we keep some desert species and some tropical species that are that share some of the same supplies and some of the same care as some of our frogs do. And then we've also branched off from some of the insects into some of the pet bugs as well, too. So we're doing a lot of tarantulas now, a few scorpions, those kind of things. And then even down to the the land crabs as well, too, and hermit crabs as well, too. So really trying to branch out and trying to find opportunities to connect people with nature. And that's where we really found our mission um, in helping people get outside the walls of their cubicle, And really enjoy what's the rhythm and nature that they can bring into that glass box on their desk or in their home or in their living room. And so we're really excited about some of those opportunities to interact with new people and find new ways to bring them into our hobby.
1: Certainly. And I can imagine, and I do got to talk about this too, because this is not a typical business. Yeah. So I'm thinking about your hiring process for employees when they come in here. So we met that gentleman, Jason. Yep. Yep. Who is running the tarantula room. And as soon as I met him, I thought, yeah, he's a tarantula guy. (laughs) So when you're looking for employees, you get kids that are scared to flip burgers at McDonald's for crying out loud, but yet to put out there and say, oh, by the way, you'll be handling tarantulas. (laughs) And if the tarantulas get out, you're going to have to chase them down and put them back to the cage. So I bet you, first off, there's probably a ton of people that wouldn't even apply. But second off, how do you find that right fit? Yeah, to to be able to come in here because all of your employees have no problem yep. handling the bugs, the reptiles, yep. you know, creepy yep. crawlies. Yep, yep. I think it's really a
0: unique type of business, and I think that opens us up for unique opportunities to reach people when it comes to on the hiring front. So some of the things that we do is we um we'll go to our audience and our customers, and then we'll do job postings there. So it's interesting that most businesses don't do that. But uh, sometimes some of our best customers also make our best employees as well, too. We <laughs> do a, an employee purchase program where employees get all of our products at a very discounted price. And so that's a big draw for some of our employees as well, too. We try to partner with other organizations, especially organizations that are outside the pet trade, but are very similar to what we're doing here. So scientific community, legislative, that kind of stuff, and partner with them to just show what we're doing on a conservation captive breeding front, which sometimes leads to opportunities for people to come and work here. And we just have a really good HR team that engages with our marketing team to really promote those types of uh, roles. And then we're just constantly trying to recruit really good people that are really passionate about changing our hobby. And so we have people that will come from all over the country to work here. One of the good examples that I like to point out is on the insect front, You'll have people that are really into insects, so they go to college and they want to study entomology, which is the study of bugs, and they graduate and they find out that, hey, there aren't really a lot of jobs taking care of bugs. There are a lot of jobs killing bugs, but that's which not really true. the passion that they, that they went to school with. And so we find these people that we can recruit that say, hey, you know, instead of killing a bunch of bugs, would you like to raise a bunch of bugs? And so that's been a really cool partnership. And um, funnel for getting people that are passionate about what they're keeping and getting them to come here. We also do a lot of uh, projects and teams. So one of the um, uh, in our isopod department, we started working with a bunch of different crabs as well too. So and when you think of taking care of isopods or roly polies, it's a job where you're cleaning cages, you're harvesting bugs. It gets monotonous, and so we've been able to combine those jobs with very research driven, experiment driven opportunities to breed other animals in that department and so i think that's a draw for people that we're, we're combining doing new stuff with doing stuff that we're just trying to do on scale
1: what i'd like to do is i want to circle back because you mentioned during our tour you mentioned this the legislative piece yeah so we're looking at these cockroaches as you're yeah. breeding, you're and you showed me this one cockroach that's I don't know. Not any bigger than my fingernail. Yep. Yep. And you were telling me those things. First off, they sell for ten dollars a piece. <laughs> yes. Yep. Which yep. blows my mind. Yep. But second off, people are going to federal prison. Yep. For smuggling these yep. things, which I, it still blows my mind. Talk to us about the laws that are around this. The isopod craze is all about collecting these new color
0: things and about having the new and, and better stuff. And so. That That incentivizes people to do things that are illegal, bring in bugs from other countries without the proper permits or paperwork, not going through the proper channels. And so there are people go getting arrested and investigated for stuff like that. It's really interesting. on the animal side, there isn't a lot of legislation. there it's really? pretty wild, wild west. On the bug side, there's lots of that. So we we partner with the USDA. We have to get permitted in order to receive bugs. And then we also have to get separate permits for every single state for every single bug that we ship out. And so sometimes states will come back and say, hey, no, we're going to deny your permit. And we have to work with them to develop ways in which we can safely ship those bugs to those locations and sometimes convince them that partnering with us as a legitimate business that's following the rules is in their best interest. So one of the interesting ones is we, New York came to us and denied our permits for selling roaches into their state. And then we appealed and said, Hey, there's this black market trade of people selling roaches all over the country. So roaches are making it into your state already. But part of the permit process requires that we do some record keeping that we could report to you. Here's how many shipments are going into your state. And so we said, Hey, like we'll relook at our application. Let's talk about this and let's find ways to work together. And we were able to get the permits now I needed to do that. And so nice. We really feel like working with the authorities and the governing bodies in our country on the bug side, but also on the animal side. Like all the time there's new legislation that'll come up uh, trying to ban certain types of animals or are nervous about how those animals are going to affect our ecosystem. Michigan did something a few years ago where they were considering a white list and we worked with the DNR and some other players in our government to talk about what would make sense common sense wise. And we really feel like our role As a player in this industry is to be involved in that type of legislation and education, not only our government and the agencies that might regulate us, but also us as a hobby. How do we create a clean trade that doesn't impact wild populations? So we work with organizations like the University of Tennessee we're working with right now on disease prevention in our hobby. So how do we create a clean trade that keeps diseases um, that might be in one country from spreading to native populations here in Michigan or involved in a pet trade that could possibly spread some of those kinds of things. And we're really excited about working with those types of people to to come up with solutions that are win-win for everybody.
1: And another thing, too, that I would like to talk about, you mentioned this briefly, is your marketing. So as somebody who plays in this world, I, I got to give you guys kudos because, like I said, your Facebook group, over 165,000 followers. You put a picture of a frog or a tarantula or whatever it is, people are going crazy. Yeah. So you have obviously plugged into this huge community of people out there. Yep. And of course, we walked through your marketing area. I was surprised to see so many people on your marketing team. Yeah. So talk to us about like, how did you go about first off creating this marketing team? Because a lot of people think about marketing almost last. Yep. Yep. in the online world, you almost have to think about that first. Yeah, very much.
0: It's um, in the online world. We don't have foot traffic. We don't have cars driving by. A lot of it is really force. We have to force the eyeballs onto the products that we're selling. And our marketing team does a really good job of presenting what we're selling and presenting what we're doing to customers in areas that they are at. Uh, so it's Facebook. It's YouTube. Um, it's different forums we're everywhere trying to put our products in front of uh, customers that are interested in that and also building the brand that we want to do so a lot of our marketing focuses on the conservation type stuff that we're doing and focuses on some of the uh, behind the scenes stuff that we're doing that I think really endears people to to brands that they feel like what we're doing is actually making a difference in our hobby as opposed to just somebody just trying to sell stuff and then I think we're a little bit unique and blessed in the arena of as keeping animals that just allows a lot of content. And so we're able to put out a lot of content because there's just a lot of animals and a lot of different animals.
1: So nice and beautiful too. And one of the things that I would like to talk about as well, you mentioned this several times is it seems like there's a lot of places out there that when they're selling these types of exotic pets, you were talking about how they're so close to end of life, you know, versus what you're doing here. Talk to us a little bit about that difference.
0: Yeah. So We mentioned some of that with the wild-caught animals. A lot of times they're catching adult animals. Who knows how old they are and how close they are to end of life. One of the good examples of that here in the U.S. is hermit crabs. A lot of the ones that are collected, they might see for sale, especially down in Florida. Those are all full adults, might not have very much life left on them at that point because they're really hard to collect and breed in that regard. And so one of the projects that we worked on with a partner was how to captive breed hermit crabs which creates a much better experience for our natural habitat that we're not pulling hermit crabs out of the wild, but also provides a much better experience for the customer that they get something that's younger, that's going to last a lot longer than something an older animal would do at that point. It's less stressful on the animal as well, too.
1: Josh, if somebody's listening to this and they want to check out your website and they want to look at your social media and all that other good stuff, what's the best place for them to do that? Go to
0: JoshesFrogs.com and don't worry if you misspell it. We own all the misspellings and so I'll get you to the (laughs) the right spot. The uh, worst name ever for a business to have that many S's in it because an S sounds like every other letter as well to you. So it's really hard to find that. So JoshesFrogs.com, but you can find us on uh, Facebook, YouTube as well. And then uh, we do uh, markets every so often where we invite people, the public to come and check out our facility. Um, We have those on a regular basis. The next one's coming up here in a couple weeks.
1: Oh, nice. For our audience, you can just go to TotalMichigan.com, click on Josh's interview, and be able to see all the links that he mentioned there. Josh, once again, thank you so much for having us in today. This is quite the place. So anyways, thank you for letting us in. Thank you, Cliff. It was good to have you and good to show you around. Great. And for our audience, we will see you again next week with another great interview.